This is Mark Steiner, and you're about to listen to Soundbites, our series on food, agriculture, and the environment, and our future. Right here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Also broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL, 90.7 FM. Today on Soundbites, we'll hear an interesting advancement in science that paves the way for carbon-neutral fertilizer production, which could vastly limit our need for petroleum. And we wrap the show up with a recipe with local chef Stefano Porcile. But first, last week, Soundbite senior producers Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery visited Black Dirt Farm in Preston, Maryland. Black Dirt Farm is a project started by a collective of young black farmers, including Aaliyah Frazier, who is also the Eastern Shore Programs Manager for Future Harvest Casa, and Blaine Snipstall. And here's Stephanie and Mark's interview with Blaine Snipstall, co-owner and co-operator of Black Dirt Farm. Uh, what are we looking at right now? Uh, right now, we're looking at our high tunnel. Um, it's a small tunnel. Um, from right to left, we have planted uh, ginger and then cucumbers, tomatoes intercropped with uh, scallions or um, spring onions. And then uh, to the far left, we have tomatoes and peppers mixed in together. Um, so we're just experimenting to see what grows well here. Um, we actually put the cucumbers down the middle because by the time they get done, uh, our onions um, should be getting close-ish to be ready to be harvested. So we're going to use this middle space to cure the onions. Because um, this year we, we scaled up our onion production. So. That's what we're looking at here. And then at the front, actually, there's um, sunflowers and pollinators um, like, um, I don't know, Elysium, buckwheat, and cosmos, and things of that nature, marigolds, just to help uh, add more diversity and give a food source for, for the pollinators uh, in the area inside the tunnel. Mm-hmm. We have it elsewhere on the farm, but we want to put it inside the tunnel. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. How long have you been on this piece of land? Uh, so it's been uh, a journey. It's been four years now. Um, well, three years on this particular piece, which is called Mother's Land, which is um, the aunties whom we call the land. The people who own the land whom we're leasing from, we refer to them as the aunties. And that's how they like to be referred to. And uh, one of them, um, her mother, this is her her family's land so we call it mother's land or ernestine's land we first started on the other side of the woods four years ago while um i was still working and managing at five seeds farm so we come out here on the weekends and at that time well it's always been like a community a collective process um that first year we just did sweet potatoes and winter squash because i've always got a hankering of sweet potatoes actually my part of my dream is to become a really good sweet potato farmer. I feel like if I can't do anything else but grow sweet potatoes, I'll, I'll be able to sit well with some pies, put it like that. <laughs> and uh, so that first year we, we were farming, um, the we at that time was Gail and Zachary out of uh, D.C. And then we had a variety of folks come help out, um, Tavia and Sasha and Aaliyah. Um, and then the second year uh, we switched our production over to here and then again did more sweet potatoes and winter squash and really scaled up we ended up doing about an acre and a half of both of those uh, in combination um 
and that year we yielded a thousand pounds of winter squash and then almost five thousand pounds of um of sweet potatoes and that year it was primarily my uh my brother randy um alia and myself and then we also had a variety of folks come and help out from dc and baltimore and elsewhere um and then the third year which would have been last season um alia and i decided to move out to the shore um and we focused everything on mother's land and did more uh, intensive production more like what we were doing at five seeds farm you know in terms of way more vegetables, less larger crops. Um, and just to give a go to see what the production um, would yield for us, um, given our recuperation of the soil and, um, and really to test out ideas that we had. Um, and so this year, learning from the last three years, we found that, you know, we find that because of our distance from the, the urban centers of D.C. and Baltimore and the level of access to land, although we're tenant farmers, but we have... Uh, access to arable land uh, we found that it was a better mix for us to do a combination of direct marketing farmers markets supplemental CSAs um, and then wholesaling with uh, larger crops like potatoes sweet potatoes onions um, winter squash in, in particular that's where we're at now um, and each year you know we we're constantly learning this year has been a journey um, and we also we do quite a bit of uh, educational organizing work. Mm-hmm. Aaliyah came up with the name Black Dirt Farm. Uh, and part of the philosophy behind it is that um, when you look at the role of the farmer, the only thing that we do is really farm the dirt. We don't create the seed. In fact, we don't grow the plant. We don't do much of anything. We do a lot of things just trying to keep up with the things that we don't do, i.e. the weather and the land. Um, but we really work to, to improve the soil conditions. And so dirt farmers, and we're black, we're African descendants, so black dirt farm. And also to give an image of healthy biological soil often tends to be darker. Um, I don't want to say black because if you look at our soil, as a friend said, it's like, hey, this isn't black dirt farm, this is tan dirt farm. And the soil looks like a big beach, basically. <laughs> the eastern shore is a big beach. And our educational or organizing work, we actually stem from branch off of the Five Seeds Farm experience. And what that experience taught us was that in order to advance sustainable agriculture or agroecology uh, in a way that is inclusive to the most amount of people, particularly people of color, um, African-Americans, we recognized that we needed to be the ones to create that kind of space so that more folks who had apprehensions about agriculture now can journey into agriculture and find a place for themselves, whether it be from farming to production um, to processing to organization. You know, there's a myriad of things. Um, and so to that effect, we, we call that the Black Dirt Farm Collective. Part of our mission is really to instigate or agitate sort of the progressive development of the agrarian community in the region. And so that takes on a different different forms and different levels. 
urban and rural, although we're, I mean, we're in the countryside, so we focus on the countryside, but we have a strong connection to the cities. You know, that's part of us. Now, the land that we, that we have the privilege to farm on is part of a larger property called Mount Pleasant Acres Farms, which is 147 acres, uh, about 60-some-odd arable, and um, the remaining um, 80 or so uh, forested and in the woods. And this is part of the northernmost track of the 2,167-acre Thompson Plantation, which was the home of uh, Aramita Ross, or what she later called herself uh, Harriet Tubman. Tubman, is, in fact, is not her last name. Um, it is uh, her husband's, her former husband's last name, whom was the r- real reason she came down in the first place to free folk from captivity. But upon her surprise, her husband had found someone else and did not want to leave captivity, right? And so she then prayed and found herself uh, with messages from the Almighty to uh, come and get her parents right on Dover Bridge. I mean, Poplar Neck, which is this road up here. Um, and by the way, Marsh Creek Road is the oldest state legislative road in the state. Um, so we're kind of at the quarter of history, um, in a sense. Uh, and then she returned to get the Dover 8 uh, from this particular track of land. And so and to that effect, we refer to this as the ancestral lands of Harriet Tubman um, or Aramita Ross. Uh, again, Ross was the plantation owner's family, last name. Um, and then on the property, we have something called the witness tree, which is, we think, roughly 200-some-odd years or 170-some-odd years of uh, a tulip poplar. Um, it stands mightily above the woods. I mean, when you're driving down Marsh Creek, I mean, you can, it literally is a skyscraper above everything else. Um, and it's called the witness tree because it's it's basically bared witness to history, and we The local historians, um, from their research, believe that that tree in particular was part of the navigation system, right, that that folks on the the railroad used to chart their way north or even even down south. You know, folks did go further south to try to get into Florida, Um, but many, many obviously went went north. Our thing here is, like, we don't necessarily uh, know how long we are to be on this particular piece of land because we are tenants. And we also have other ideals um, as to where we might want to farm. Um, and so in that effort, you know, we consider the, the Black Dirt Farm experience and the collective, it's like an itinerant, something that's, that's moving, that's evolving and evolves with more people that come in with our core coordinating committee. And, and you know, we're connected elsewhere. I mean, we got a call the other night from a, a cousin. She's really an elder, but she likes to be called a cousin. Um, down in Virginia, who basically said, "Hey, look, you know, let's let's do something on our land and 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 think about that in the fall." So, you know, figuring out how to make it work, given all these uh, ideals, you know, ideals and practice can be uh, two different worlds. <laughs> the moon and the stars. What what kind of ideals are you talking about? Oh, I mean, you don't have to look too far to see that there's something terribly wrong with with society, with our food system, with the industrial model of agriculture, and how it essentially destroys people on the planet, you know, to be frank. But it's taken 400-some-odd years, one could argue, 
for it to get to this place. And so we, as a small little farmet, farmlet, farmet, um, you know, realistically, you know, we pay on comparison to this this legacy. And so part of the ideals, though, is how do we build power, continue the process of building power, right? Um, so that folks retake their agency to transform their conditions, right? And um, and really address the root causes of hunger and poverty, which really is, you know, the struggle at hand. And so taking that and at the same time running a production farm that has economic interest and we have to make money and we have and we have to do these sort of things. We don't want to be a nonprofit. We're not a nonprofit. The farm survives on its own economic engine, although both well, the majority of people who work it also have off-farm income, um, but that's by choice, not happenstance. So, you know, negotiating those two um, is is like the the ideals, mm-hmm. the ideals and the practice, mm-hmm. you know, and the reality. So, you know, we work very closely with a lot of farmers, and so that, you know, whom are like anybody other, whether small or large, are always, you know, cognizant of the economics behind you know because we got to survive um so that's the that's the negotiation (laughs) what's a community like out here um it's older (laughs) we're we're by far the youngest Mm -hmm. folks around um there are young people but you know a lot of them as soon as they graduate high school are out of here um you know there's there's not a lot going for livelihoods um, as it would be attractive to young people but the community is great I mean you know where we are this is uh, mostly uh, a black community and um, generally people are are really nice irregardless of their ethnic or cultural background Um, people have been very supportive and you know let us use their stuff we let them use their stuff you know a farmer up the road you know he's letting us grow our plants out in his greenhouse and he's not charged well he just wants a bottle of of liquor at the end of the season and i don't blame him i want one myself (laughs) so so that's not going to be a problem (laughs) um but you know everyone everyone wants to support and and help each other i will also say that you know this uh in the day back in the day uh was the headquarters of uh, the kkk in the county and folks know they're still around perhaps not as prevalent as they as they once were, visually speaking. Um, but when you cr- come across certain folks who may be of that mindset, you know, you certainly you certainly do know, you certainly do feel it. Um, but generally speaking, you know, we ain't we ain't had no no type of problems. Um, and it's it's terribly ironic because the big ag folks, you know, occasionally they'll drive up and be like, Oh yeah, you have the best looking garden in the county and to them, you know, this isn't a farm, this is just a garden. You know, and, and for me, if you have a thousand acres and we have two, yeah, technically this is a garden. But, you know, it's always funny. They'll roll up and, like, last year a couple of them stopped by to get some tomatoes and sweet potatoes from us. I mean, really anything they could get because um, they, they know our stuff tastes good and mm-hmm. ain't got nothing on it. So you said you have connections to Baltimore and D.C. still. I think I remember, is your farm involved with the Black Church Food Security yeah. Network at all? Yeah, yeah. And that's mostly that's mostly Aaliyah. Um, you know, our other folks, Randy, in the city who who head that up, uh, who work closely with the church, you know, uh, Pastor Heber Brown's church. Um, 
and things are evolving from what I understand. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what's on the docket for this season. I know that now there's an intern in the, there's an office in the first place, and now there's an intern. You know, a lot of churches are working out. You know, I think now the network's at a stage where it's, you know, it's establishing its identity and really figuring out what's like its core work going to be. Yeah, what it's actually going to be doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, we're certainly a part of that. I mean, you know, as my brother said, you know, Black Dirt Farm is the farm, and Black the <laughs> Black Church Food Security Network. So <laughs> we're just we're chilling, we're waiting. You know. <laughs> I know, like, things are a little behind the season because of the weather and, like, conditions, but what once things start growing, do you do a lot of farmer's markets? Do people come here to, like, buy directly from you, and what's your main way to get this stuff out there? Yeah, so we do uh, with the Community Farming Alliance, which is a three-part Harmony Farm, Good Sense Farm, and uh, her name is Holly. I can't remember her farm name. But anyways, we, we, we cooperatively work at the Petworth Farmer's Market every Saturday. Actually, this morning I was harvesting uh, for the market. And so we do that farmer's market. And then we do, uh, we actually sell the three-part Harmony Farm to supplement their CSA and Eco City Farms. And then we do some restaurant sales. And then we do some local sales uh, as well. So that's that's really how we we go about doing it. Um, you know, we we're very cautious of how to balance like the economic motives of our sustainability process and our personal motives for what kind of life we want to live. You know, we didn't do a farmers market for the first few years because we really enjoy our weekends, and if I want to work on the farm, I want to be able to work on the farm. Um, but now we have a farmer's market and really the only reason we decided to do it I mean besides the the finances uh, was because through working together we can proportionally pay for someone to work the market Um, and then so we don't always have to staff it which gives us which is a healthy compromise for us we might not have every weekend but at least we'll have some weekends we can play around with Um, and uh that's how we wanted to do it. And, you know, both both of us, I mean, all of us, you know, we work other jobs. You know, we don't want to put too much of a load on us to keep the farm at a certain level when because of these other jobs we wouldn't be able to keep up. You know, so just finding that, that, that balance. What does it mean for you all politically and spiritually to be on this land with so much history running through it? You know, I can only can only speak for my myself. Um, at first, I had no idea Harry Tubman came from Maryland. I had I had no clue at all. Um, you know, because like part of the the mystique of Americanism is that you know they make up these fables in history, and so the only thing I knew about Harry Tubman was that there was this underground railroad, literally underground, and she was like this scrawny, like black woman with like a lantern like shepherding along you know and come to find out actually Harriet Tubman was this cock diesel swole black woman who was the only woman allowed on the logging floor she was a logger not a farmer she was a logger um and the only woman allowed 
uh, on the floor, and uh, her intelligence uh, was highly revered, so much so that, uh, you know, there are several accounts that uh, she had several one-on-one dealings with Abraham Lincoln, and of course she was a scout in the Civil War, and of course she liberated folks at the 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 Kambahi Rebellion down south. So, you know, learning all that history, you know, it, it one, makes you appreciate the power of that that person. Um, and to show you, to show me that it's like, you know, it's possible to rise to those conditions. Um, especially given the fact that there was no Twitter, there was no nothing. Um, yeah, so learning more about that history uh, has just taught me how to, one, be a better person. Um and brought me closer to understanding who I am and how what I'm doing is connected to a long continuum, right? Is that we don't just exist in a vacuum, that there are these giants, these sages, many of them unnamed, who came before. And so, you know, why should I settle for anything less for myself? And really for those I'm in community with. Um, you know, politically, um, when people come and we just share a little bit about the history or when the historians, the actual living historians here come and talk to folks, you know, it's like, you know, people often say they're like, you know, they're blown away. I mean, you know, there's stories we've been told. It's like, you'll never read about it anywhere. Um, And so that's really... It's really empowering for folks to know, even though they're not blood-related to folks in this area, but just to learn more about their history um, gives, them, gives them strength. Everyone honks for me. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, spiritually speaking, well, every time I speak is spiritually speaking. I mean, every time anyone speaks, is, it's a spirit of theirs is, is speaking, for better or for worse. Um, but, you know, the land is, the land is from where we come from. And, you know, the, the thing is about farming, right? There's, uh, farmers often like to philosophize, so bear with me for a second. So, you know, I was talking with a friend, it's like, when you think about there's intelligence, like what intelligence is, there's many different ways or forms to look at it. And so on one hand, you have, like, social intelligence, the world of humanity, the world of ideas and cultures and concepts, right? That's, that's, that's often the intelligence that we all get rated on. But then you have the intelligence, which that's a world of constructs, right? It's something that people have made up over time, and then we just gave meaning to it. And then it, in turn, gave meaning to us, for better or for worse. Then on the other hand... The basis below all of that is the intelligence of the planet. You know, our gut is the gut of the soil, is the soil itself, right? The majority of our body, like what is human anyways? The majority of our body is bacteria and microbes, right? And that's, and that's the land. And so you have the, that intelligence, which is way older than us and way more complex and which we only know a fraction of. But... In between those two intelligences, for me, is us, our farmers who work the land. Um, and 
we have to, on one hand, have half of us, if we're, I think if some of the best of us, have more of us who are connected to the land and understand these dynamics and processes, even the minute, on a minute level, and really taps into that intelligence um, and that wisdom. And so we're, we, and then we sit sort of in the middle as a bridge on that other hand, you know, in terms of the social intelligence um, and how to navigate, you know, the dynamic between the two, the symbiosis that, that should be how we, how we live and how cultures still continue and how they once, um, but it's not the experience for, for many of us um, for, for a variety of reasons, um, you know, and so for me, I, I, I pray before I harvest and plant. I just say a little prayer, just giving thanks. And if, if I'm planting, I just ask that this plant is taken care of well and that I have the energy to keep up with all these little children. Um, and then if I'm harvesting, I give thanks for there being a harvest in the first place because um, there very well couldn't be a harvest. And that would be uh, a terrible thing. And, you know, in many parts of the world, you know, right now because of the droughts, there is no harvest, and we see the devastation that that causes. So, you know, just just keeping all that grounds you, and that coupled with the history, you know, learning my own history about where my family came from in the South, and our relationship to agriculture and the land, and and uh, or or how agriculture and the social dynamics surrounding land pushed us from from the South, and as did many other families. So all that's interwoven. Um, and so, you know, it makes me just become a better, be a better person. What does your family think about you um, being a farmer? Uh, they think I should get another job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, they're they're uh, they're smooth with it now. At first, you know, folks were like, "Oh, that's why we left the South. That's so unusual." And then others were like, geez, I don't know why you went to college if you're just going to farm anyway. And I was like, I don't know why I went to college anyway. So it looks like we can agree on one thing. Um, but, you know, now they're supportive. I think it all changed when one day I took the bus home down to Georgia. I came home with a box of produce, like 40 pounds of produce. And I said, here, it's Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> Thanks. I call it thanks taking, but they hate when I say that. <laughs> um, and uh, here, enjoy. Uh-huh. And um, I think that was like the moment that like, well, the ironic thing was I ended up cooking most of the stuff I brought because, I mean, they like to cook. They know how to cook. But, you know, around that time, you know, people want meat. And I ain't, I ain't bring no meat. <laughs> uh, but I think that was that was a certain moment. And, um you know, I've I've been able to travel around the world because of agriculture and farming, um, because of organizations I've I've been in, been in service to and worked with and, and learned from, um, and so I think that also too has helped them um, see that it is an avenue where, you know, I'm not just squandering my time toiling in the soil and. There's no raises. I'm not going to become an executive director or whatever whatever the ideals that we think that people should be doing in this country are. Um, <clears throat> if they have a college degree, 
you know, I think they've become more comfortable with. And, you know, the compromise has been as long as I come home without dirt and showered, they leave me alone about it. <laughs> At first, I didn't come home showered or without dirt. I mean, I always have dirt. Everything I have has dirt on it. But uh, that was a compromise we made, and I can live with that as long as, as, long as they can live with that, too. That was a conversation with Blaine Snipstall of Black Dirt Farm in Preston, Maryland. We've got to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll hear about an advancement in science that can pave the way for carbon-neutral fertilizer production. And on the way to break, I want to tell you that on May the 31st, the Baltimore City Health Department, Sugar-Free Kids, and Southern Baptist Church will hold a discussion called The Sweet Truth, Sugary Drinks, Community Health, and Social Justice. It'll bring together activists, health professionals, and community leaders from all across Baltimore to talk about the dangers of sugar-sweetened beverages. At the meeting, they're going to be discussing the health impacts of consuming sugary drinks and have concrete solutions, policy actions, and public health campaigns that could reduce sugary drink consumption across the city. That's Tuesday, May 31st from 5.30 to 7 p.m. at 1701 North Chester Street. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Soundbites, our series on food, agriculture, the environment, and our future, produced right here on your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and also broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. We're about to have a conversation with Dr. Catherine Brown, staff scientist at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, and Dr. Paul King, staff scientist and manager of the photobiology group at the National Renewable Energy uh, Laboratory about an amazing new discovery about nitrogen and how to create it that could alter the way we farm and do things. And Kate and Paul, welcome. Good to have you both with us. Thank you, Mark. Our pleasure. We've covered a lot over the years here on the program about both nitrogen and, and phosphorus pollution in the water and and uh, and also how it's created. But take us a step backwards. I don't know who wants to begin is fine, either one of you. Dr. Brown, maybe you can start. Just to, to, to describe, first of all, again, for our listeners, a refresher course here in this natural world of nitrogen and the created world of nitrogen and where we were before this moment. About 60% of the nitrogen in uh, the world is created biologically by nitrogen-fixing bacteria. Um, and then about 40% in the biosphere comes from industrial processes, primarily from the Haber-Bosch process. Um, and then, of course, most of that 40% is then used for things like agriculture in order to keep up with the food supply necessary to feed the population of the world. So the Haber-Bosch process, Paul, is something that, that, that many people have argued about because of, of what it takes to create this. Right. So uh, it's it's a fairly old process. It's a, it's sort of the it's the industrial standard. It requires a lot of energy in the form of heat and pressure and uses a lot of natural gas. So it, it requires hydrogen and that comes from natural gas reforming. So it has a rather large carbon footprint. And but the process that you have 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 worked on um in in creating uh, nitrogen is this light driven process, right? Uh, which is, I mean, it seems to me really revolutionary uh, in terms of what its possibilities are. That's correct. Uh, we, we've taken the, the enzyme that Kate mentioned that microbes use to naturally fix nitrogen into ammonia and, and coupled it to a molecule that harvests light 
that light harvesting is what provides the energy and the uh, necessary reducing power to convert the nitrogen into ammonia. So, so Catherine, could you talk a bit about the process? I mean, what, what you all did, what the process was for you in, in your kind of working on this and discovering it? How did this take place? Uh, well, so we've actually been working on these types of processes for uh, the last seven and a half years or so um, using different enzymes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've had a lot of experience uh, creating these kind of structures, which is really what led to this breakthrough. The essential components of the reaction are we use these nanocrystals, mm-hmm. which can absorb light and create reducing potentials, and then we couple them to enzymes. Um, and we've done, as I said, a number of different enzymes. And in this case, we tried it with nitrogenase, which is used by bacteria to fix nitrogen um, primarily in the soil. Um, and then we are able to take that an enzyme out of the um, microbe and couple it to these nanocrystals that absorb light, and then those nanocrystals are able to create the reducing potential and then donate it to the enzyme to drive this reaction of nitrogen reduction. So the way I understand it, the, the, I mean, the, the, the process that's been done forever, but people call the Haber-Bosch process, to creating this nitrogen is, uh, is, is, um, and, and changing it to, to ammonia, is, is, it requires a lot of fossil fuel, right? And, 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 and high temperatures. Describe what that process is and how this would change this. What our process can do is, is rather than using sort of the, the heat, uh, which really comes, I think, comes mainly from uh, coal-fired power plants um, and, and other kind of uh, fossil fuel-dependent methods, what, we, what we've done is replaced all of that with the, using the energy of sunlight. So there's enough sunlight uh, impinging on the earth on a daily basis to power the global needs. Uh, on, on a yearly scale. So there's a huge amount of energy potential and sunlight that's kind of uh, there to be taken uh, and used in, in this kind of manner. So it's a renewable, sustainable source of energy that uh, has much lower environmental impact uh, on the long term and, and makes this uh, technology potentially uh, uh, improvement on the, on the Haber-Bosch process. So and I, I just add to that. Oh, that please, go uh, ahead. Go ahead. The Haber-Bosch process is also done at very high pressures. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that the enzyme does that's, that's really incredible is that it functions at normal atmospheric pr- pressure. Mm-hmm. And so in addition to using the energy from sunlight, as Paul said, this also allows you to save the energy of having to create the very high pressures that are necessary for the Haber-Bosch process. So a couple of things. So I, I'm curious. I mean, this is uh, to me, this kind of research Using nanotechnology and 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 solar, being able to use literally solar power to create this this the, the nitrogen people use to farm. I mean, this so what what will it do in terms of saving our 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 our, our need to use fossil fuels? What could the potential outcome really be? So Haber Bosch uses about two to five percent of the global energy uh, in 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 the production of ammonia. So we would save. I mean, potentially you'd be saving that amount of, uh, of uh, energy in the form of fossil fuels. If you were to completely replace Haber-Bosch with some kind of photo-driven or photoelectrochemical type process. Keep in mind, though, these were very early days and very far from that kind of scenario. So this is a long, kind of a long-term uh, view of the impact of the work. So that, 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 I'm glad you said that because I was about to ask that question, Dr. K. Brown, about... about um but what it would take and how many years it would take and what it would mean to take this to scale? How would that be done? Um, I think, as Paul said, we're very early days. So I, that's 
something of an impossible question to answer because <laughs> there's still, um, you know, we look at this as scientists who are interested in really fundamental processes, and um, there's still a lot of open questions about how these enzymes work. And um, as much as the energy benefits that this work gives, that's our interest in that really if you want to take these this kind of a process and make it on an industrial scale, you have to understand fundamentally how these enzymes work, how they work at room temperature and room pressure, and really understand the fundamental chemistry that they're doing. Um, and we believe that this process can help guide that research because our, our system can allow us to ask some fundamental questions that haven't been asked yet. Um, and then in addition, it represents this potential for uh, doing nitrogen fixation with solar-driven um, energy. So uh, I think we view it really as laying the groundwork for the fundamental research that needs to be done to understand how to make it an industrial process. Got you. So that's really important to understand where we are in the pro- where this takes us in the process. So, so again, let me just come back, uh, Paul King, to kind of think through what you actually did when 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 you kind of uh, show that these nanocrystals of I hope I have this right, cadmium sulfide could har- harvest the light. Correct. That's correct. Right. But so you actually did. Trans, you actually did make the transition from nitrogen into ammonia. Did that take place? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so tell, playing off of what Catherine Brown said. So, what are the next fundamental steps? Right. So, I th- I think what what we'd like to do is under as Kate said, understand the enzyme better and and how it works and how it achieves this really challenging chemical transformation under rather uh, benign conditions, and if we understand that, pro, uh, you know, sort of the working the the, the working part of the enzyme in, the, in that level of detail, we can inspire the the synthetic production of mimics of of enzymes that uh, are cheaper to make um, and can be made on a large scale. So we can make the process overall more scalable because we're always working on very small reaction scales right now. Mm-hmm. In order for this to have global impact, it needs to be on a much, much larger scale. And in order to do that in a, a cost-effective manner, we sort of need to evolve towards more synthetic uh, designs in terms of the catalyst. So the enzyme is, is, is an excellent model for understanding how to make difficult chemical transformations work efficiently. And what we want to do is reproduce that model in a more simple scale in, 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 a, in, a, in a way that can be more, more scalable, you know, scaled up in a larger so, so uh, Catherine, could you talk just a mi- for a minute about just how you even, how you, how you were brought to this research? I mean, what what how did this process begin for you, for all of you? Uh, well, it actually started on a, an entirely different enzyme, uh, one that actually produces hydrogen. Uh huh. Um, and and so we've been working for uh, a number of years now on coupling that enzyme to these nanostructures and looking at both. Um, how the catalysis is driven by uh, coupling the enzyme to the nanocrystal, and then also some fundamental questions about what that can tell us about how the enzyme works and how the nanocrystals work. So our collaborators who are also on this paper, they, they study the nanocrystals, and, and they're interested in the fundamental chemistry of, and physics of the nanocrystals. Um, and, uh, and then we started branching out into several other enzymes, um, and at a certain point, um, based on other collaborations with 
the other groups that are on this paper who work on nitrogenase, uh, we sort of led to the question of, well, do we think this would work? Um, we had this established data set um, and a great deal of experience using these other enzymes, and so it seemed like a natural extension to get a little more ambitious and try this much more challenging chemistry, um, working with these experts in the field of nitrogenase. And, um, and really this, I, I really can't stress enough how much this was a collaborative effort. Right, right. Um, not just Paul and I, but there's a long list of authors and everyone contributed. And really it was a kind of a dream team of expertise in um, nanocrystals, in the enzymes. And then Paul and I are really uh, have a lot of experience putting those two things together. Um, and so we were very fortunate to work with excellent collaborators and really sort of all come together to make the whole process work based on a lot of years of experience. And I, I think it's really exciting, and I think one of the things that, that, that what our listeners hope to get out of this as well is this, in, in some ways, Paul King is where I, I hope people consider, the government and other places consider really investing the kind of resources in, in bringing this to scale and bringing the research to the point where, it can, where we can actually use it. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I think we're going to see kind of a growing interest from, from the research community in the study of, of of this enzyme and and, the, and it's actually quite fascinating because it does a lot of interesting chemistry in addition to into reduction it'll do some uh, reduction of CO to methane it, it's fat, it's a fantastic enzyme in, in terms of the of what it can achieve and and I, I want to kind of go back a little bit we you know we as a national lab we 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 focus and study you know ways in which to uh, develop renew, different renewable energy uh, uh, processes and so this. This work is really also the integration of what we do well as a national lab, which is light harvesting and making these kind of next-generation photovoltaic-type materials and, and, redox, and the study of redox biochemistry and, and this reaction that we, uh, we reproduced. You know, this is something that happens in microbes all the time. So there's photosynthetic microbes out there that use light energy and, and make uh, nitrogen into ammonia. So we really took kind of two different technologies, the uh, artificial synthetic light capture technology and the enzyme technology of microbes, put them together to make this work. Well, I want to thank both of you for taking the time with us. And, and this is uh, just amazing, very exciting work. Dr. Paul King and Dr. Catherine Brown are both staff scientists at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Dr. King is also the manager of the photobiology group at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. An amazing discovery. We'll be linking to the articles uh, from Science Other Places that describe more about what they've done. And thank you so much for taking your time with the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites today for our listeners. Thank you, thank you Mark. Right now, we're about to hear a recipe from a local Baltimore chef brought to us by senior producer Stephanie Mavronis. There's a new restaurant in Baltimore Station North neighborhood on North Charles Street on the same block as the Charles Theater. It's called Colette. I caught up with the French-inspired restaurant's executive chef, Stefano Porcile, to hear more about their work, their food, and their mentality, and to get an excellent recipe for steamed mussels. Hi, I'm Stefano Porcile. I am the chef of Colette in Station North. Colette is a French-inspired bistro that really tries to highlight what is best available to us locally and seasonally. 
sort of drawing from a French tradition of like really thorough and thoughtful cooking. We've sort of gained some momentum through our other restaurant, Bottega, a few blocks away. But as we have opened this restaurant, we're trying to have more of a presence in the community. The restaurant setup is kind of, there's a bar at the front with a salon, and we do not take reservations neither at the bar nor at the salon. There are about 20 seats available for people to come in. As you move towards the back, you will see the dining room. At the bar, we have a, a bar menu that starts at 5 when the restaurant opens, but usually goes all the way until the bar closes. During the week, the bar will close at midnight, except for Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, when we will close at 1. The idea is that, you know, we're not trying to just provide the same bar food that every bar would have at late night. You know, there's a lot of, like, healthier options. There's some seafood, some charcuterie, and, like, a steak frites, steak tartare. Very nice. Some stuff on the menu changes each week depending on what's in season and what new ingredients you have coming in. Do you have like a favorite dish or two that's on the menu right now that you really like? Yeah, so we have been getting these really beautiful morel mushrooms. And with that, we're doing a really rustic morel and mushroom stew with uh, some fava beans and a really nice mushroom and madeira velute. And we serve that with some like freeform ricotta dumplings that are very homey. You know, they're similar to like dumplings in the chicken and dumpling tradition, just like some ricotta, some grana padana, really like light and airy. That's a really good snapshot of sort of what happens here. Like last, for the past couple of weeks, there were a ton of ramps available. And um, I had the privilege of getting in like hundreds of pounds of ramps that made their way all throughout the menu. It's for me it's really about sort of taking whatever is available and just like presenting it in like the truest and most honest way. I think that vegetables have a lot of natural beauty and that they don't need to be messed with to any great degree to be enjoyable. Take a look at our menu. The idea is that there will always be something that's approachable and simple. And there's also other things in the menu that are more adventurous and we hope that as people come through and develop more of a rapport with Colette, they will be open to trying new dishes that they would otherwise be less likely to try. We have a really beautiful dessert program at Colette. We have a very talented young pastry chef who works very hard and makes really nice seasonal desserts. If you would like to have a quick bite before or after a movie, there's all of the open seating at the salon. And uh, yeah, it's a great spot to just come by for a late night drink or some late night food that isn't going to bog you down. So this next dish is steamed mussels that are steamed in a nice fortified fish and lobster broth with some lobster roe butter and some fresh herbs. What do you mean by fortified? Fortification is the process by which you turn a really simple light stock into something considerably richer. This at the restaurant, we are very committed to minimizing waste because we really respect the ingredients that we get and that we get the privilege of working with. So this fish broth is a simple fumé made from the fish bones that we cut the fish from. All of the fish trim gets blended back into it with some tomatoes to sort of give it a thicker mouthfeel. It is a a really simple way of utilizing fish scrap and giving ultimately a much richer, like, fishy flavor. And um, that also gets fortified with some crab and lobster roe. If people are interested in making some of their own stocks at home and maybe they have some of their like fish bones or stuff that they've cooked with that they want to use, what is the process of that? Do you just like boil the stuff and then blend the stuff back into it? Or what's um, a simple way for, for people to do that? You know, it depends on how in-depth you want to go with it. This dish would work with just like a few tablespoons of old tomato sauce as with uh, some white wine as you're steaming the mussels. I commend anyone that tries to make stocks at home. I think that's really great. 
the process through which you make fume is uh, you just take the fish, uh, whatever fish bones you might have, and then you make sure to rinse them to get all of the impurities out just by running some cold water over them for 10 or 15 minutes. And then once the water starts coming off clear, you uh, put them into a pot here at the restaurant. The first step to that broth is some fennel and some onions go into a pot with a little bit of oil and get cooked down for 10 or 15 minutes until they're very tender. Then we add the fish bones that have been chopped up and rinsed properly and that sweats for another 10 or 15 minutes just to really infuse the base with a really nice fishy flavor and that is then covered with ice water and then turned on a very low heat. You then allow that to cook for about 45 minutes very slowly and what cooking it slowly will do is it'll result in a much clearer like fish broth that isn't going to have all of the particles of the meat that you might not be able to get from the fish. After that, you strain the fish stock. And then here at the restaurant, once again, since we don't want to waste the fish trim, we um, take that and we fold in some tomatoes. And we bring that up for a few minutes. And once that is at a nice simmer, we then poach all of the fish trim and the lobster and crab roe in the broth. And then that gets strained out and slowly blended back in. And what will happen is as you blend the roe and the fish it'll thicken it in a similar way that you know like it's i don't want to say it's quite like gravy but it's thicker than just a simple broth but like i said for the listeners at home who are interested in trying to make a mussel dish you know the key to cooking mussels is cooking them in a very hot pan and cooking them quickly as to not overcook them you want the mussels to open up you'll be able to tell when they're fully cooked by how they release themselves from the shell as with any seafood, you want to be very careful not to overcook them because as you overcook the shellfish, the proteins tighten up and they get really tough. The way that we do it here at the restaurant is the mussels go into a screaming hot pan with a little bit of oil. Then we add a little bit of white wine. The point of the white wine is sort of to add some more steam to the mixture and also to preserve some of that delicious mussel liquid that gets released as the mussels get cooked off. If you steam them dry, you risk sort of reducing that into nothing and then ultimately losing and or burning that flavor which will ultimately taint your broth you would want to use anywhere between two to three ounces of white wine after the mussels are all open but maybe not necessarily fully released from their shells we add two to three ounces of our fortified fish broth which you at home can once again make with a little bit of old tomato sauce that you might have from another day of cooking once the mussels are fully released we just season the broth with a little bit of espalette which is a traditional chili from the south of france some salt and then we finish the sauce with a little bit of lobster butter which is a lobster roe whisked into butter and that just adds a little bit of a velvety quality to the broth and then we finish it with some fresh herbs at the very last minute what kind of herbs go nicely with this dish? Seafood generally loves parsley. I like to use um, a mixture of parsley, tarragon, and some chives. The tarragon, I feel, lends a really nice sort of like licorice sweetness to the dish. The chives just sort of reinforce the allium quality, give it a nice oniony flavor. But you always want to make sure to add your herbs at the very last minute so that they don't overcook and wilt and so that you keep the flavor as fresh as possible. So just chop them up and then like top off the dish while it's still in the pan and just kind of, you just kind of mix it around? Or did yeah. you or did you mix it when it came out of the pan into the bowl? No, I, you mix it very quickly at the last minute right before the mussels come out of the pan. It's very traditional in the south of France to eat mussels with aioli. Contrary to popular belief, aioli isn't any flavored mayo. That is a flavor mayo. Aioli is a sauce made from egg yolk and mashed garlic with a little bit of olive oil. It's supposed to have a really nice sharpness to it, and that sort of balances out with like the creaminess and the richness of the broth. 
Mussels are hard to find. Anytime that I want to buy seafood, I make the drive out to H Mart in Catonsville. They have an excellent seafood counter with a lot of variety. You might be able to get mussels at one of the local fishmongers downtown, or you might luck out at your local grocery store. This is a small plate at the restaurant, so we usually serve anywhere between 15 and 20 mussels. In the coming month, we are doing an event at the Four Seasons with a bunch of other chefs in the area to benefit the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. It is called Feastable, and it will be taking place June 11th at 11.30. It's promising to be a really beautiful daytime hang in the promenade of the Four Seasons. It is uh, pretty awesome for us to be able to give back. Tickets are available at FeastableBaltimore.com. All the proceeds go to charity. And there will be about 11 restaurants and a few people doing cocktails and wine will be provided by Old Westminster Winery. Well, thank you so much for talking to me this morning and um, for giving us this recipe and tour of Colette. Hey, thanks. Thanks for coming. Colette is located at 1709 North Charles Street in Station North. You can see their ever-changing seasonal-inspired menu at colettebaltimore.com. That's C-O-L-E-T-T-E baltimore.com. You can also follow them on Instagram and see beautiful photos of their food at colette underscore baltimore. And for sound bites on The Mark Steiner Show, I'm Stephanie Mavronis. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our senior producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer here at WEAA is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Delmarva Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our interns are Morgan Barber and Calvin Perry. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. To podcast The Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org. Or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, The Voice of the Community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.